And every time I've ever heard a president of a university or the chancellor explain what the purpose of a university was, the answer is always the same. It's to prepare students for the future. Well, how can we be preparing students for the future if we're not teaching them basic intellectual property? That is the future. Gary Michelson is a man of unique talents, orthopedic surgeon, neglected disease advocate, and billionaire philanthropist. He is also one of the most prolific medical inventors in history, the sole inventor on 992 issued U.S. and foreign patents. All of them relate to the treatment of spinal disorders. Hello, I'm Bruce Berman. Welcome to Understanding IP Matters, a podcast series that looks at the role of intellectual property rights and how creators become entrepreneurs. Understanding IP Matters is brought to you by the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding. Welcome, Dr. Michelson. It's good to have you on Understanding IP Matters. You're one of the most prolific inventors in your field, directly responsible for almost 1,000 patents, medical patents. What inspires you to invent? Usually there's a problem that is looking for a solution. And rather than accept the status quo, I like to create the answer to that problem. And how do you do that? Well, Land, the gentleman who invented the Polaroid process, and and that's a great story. He was taking a photograph of his three-year-old daughter at her birthday party, and she said, oh, daddy, why can't I see that picture right now? And he was acquainted with the darkroom process. He realized that the inside of a camera is pretty dark. And from there, it was just a linear progression to move the photo development process into the camera. And he, he quipped that the hardest thing about inventing is just finding the right problem. Looking back, which inventions are you proudest of? Well, I think the ones that made the largest difference were the ones that revolutionized lumbar spinal surgery. The lumbar spine is the lower back. And those were historically just massive operations, five, six hours, uh, four or five units of blood lost, long hospitalizations, high risk of infections, long, long recuperations at home, a lot of pain. And the things that I invented have changed that to being an inpatient operation for a day or an outpatient operation where you go home the same day. And just the magnitude of the surgery has been dramatically reduced, the morbidity, all the complications, and the success rate has been improved from about 55, 60% to over 95%. And I think you, you designed a set of tools for yourself and then someone else asked you for those, those instruments. And I think there's a story behind that. What, what was, what's, what's that story? When I was doing my fellowship in spinal surgery, I was operating on a woman who had a long history of back pain. And when we went in there, she indeed had a disc rupture, but the disc had ruptured very, very slowly over a long period of time, and it had dragged the periosteum, that is the skin of the bone, out with it, and that's what bone spurs really are. So once I took the ruptured part of the disc out, there were these two like rhinoceros horns of bone pressing on the nerve. And I said to Alex Brodsky, who was my mentor at the time in his fellowship, Alex, you can't leave that because that's going to be pressing on the nerve and hurt her. What are we going to do? And he said, do not do anything. 
<laughs> and then he started to recount horror stories where very accomplished spine surgeons had attempted to correct that problem and really only elicited worse problems. And when I was in my first year of practice on my own, I saw the exact same thing again. And I said, I'm not leaving that. And I developed a new technique to fix it. It worked so well that I developed a set of instruments to facilitate that. And I had a referral spine practice, which meant that other people had already operated on their own patients. Patients did not get better. And now they were referring these cases that did not get better to me to reoperate. And they would always want to come and be the assistant at surgery. And so when I brought out these instruments and they saw those, they would go, wow, uh, where'd you get those? And I said, well, I had a mate. He said, well, make me some. <laughs> and then after I'd done that, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, 10 times, the machinist who was making it for me said, doctor, it would be better for you to just make a hundred. It would be less work, less expensive to make a hundred at one time and keep making them one at a time because they had to set up all the machines over and over again. And I said to him, well, what will I do with a hundred sets? And his answer was sell them. Dr. Michelson has developed new implants, instruments, and procedures that decrease blood loss and incision size. After a legal battle with Medtronic over the origins of his spine-related patents, Dr. Michelson sold much of his portfolio to the company for $1.35 billion, placing him on the Forbes 400 list. Causes supported by Dr. Michelson and his foundations include reproductive biology, animal welfare, and intellectual property education. In 2017, he established the Michelson Institute for Intellectual Property. MIIP recently announced a program at historically black colleges and universities to bring IP education to a new generation of entrepreneurs. Dr. Michelson, there's a disconnect between uh, what IP rights achieve and how they're seen by various audiences. It seems to be a, a thought that, that IP rights uh, create a barricade, therefore protection only, not for facilitating sharing. How did we get to this point? Why does that, that mis misnomer exist and what can we do to, to change it? I think there's two aspects to your question. Um, I think there is a perception that Patents are monopolistic, which they are, and therefore they're inherently bad. Mm -hmm. That's the first part. And the answer to that is there are many technologies that simply would never come to the public if they did not have some proprietary protection. So the public would actually be deprived of those things. Mm -hmm. there, there is in, in patent law uh, a term, a design around. Right. And that kind of sounds like a bad thing, but actually that's a great thing. So, um, and I, I tell the story about the Wright brothers. So the Wright brothers are credited with the first successful powered flying machine. The only thing that they had actually invented was they copied birds and birds turn by twisting the ends of their wings. That's how they actually turn. They don't flap harder on one side than the other side. And the Wright brothers built a flyer out of basically flexible plywood and, and, and balsa wood. And, and then they connected cables to the tips of the wings and they could rotate the tips of the wings to control the stability around the long axis of the airplane. Now that did succeed, but a gentleman in France invented shortly thereafter a thing called the aileron. And every airplane that flies today uses ailerons and nobody uses what's called wing working. 
So by proving that this powered flight was possible, if you could control the wingtips, that promoted a design around which was more successful than the original. You're a devoted philanthropist, uh, supporting many important causes from animal welfare to vaccine development. In 2017, you founded the Michelson Institute for Intellectual Property, which supports IP education. What attracted you to IP education? Well, first of all, I think I have a great debt to what is the most robust intellectual property system in the world, the United States. And um, if you look at the most successful, most valued companies in the world today, all of them were started by people in the college demographic. And every time I've ever heard a president of a university or the chancellor explain what the purpose of a university was, the answer is always the same. It's to prepare students for the future. Well, how can we be preparing students for the future if we're not teaching them basic intellectual property? That is the future. What are some of MIIP's accomplishments? I think you, uh, you were working with historically black uh, colleges and universities and you created a textbook, but why don't I let you tell people about uh, what, what your accomplishments are? Well, it began with this, what you were mentioning before. How do we change public perception about what intellectual property really is? And the whole idea of it from the founding fathers was to democratize it, make it there for everyday people who have thoughts, geez, I can do this better. And here's how I can do it better. And they, they made the system basically very simple, inexpensive, despite people's perceptions. It's not expensive. Um, and we, we, created what was the first intellectual property textbook for students so that somebody who is in that college demographic could understand how to protect what they were going to create. And they are the creators of today's economy. So in, in the 1950s, more than 85% of the value of the Fortune 500 companies resided in the things that they owned, the buildings, the machines, and so forth. And today it's the exact reverse. Uh, Uber doesn't own anything. They have a few cars they were, they were playing with to see if they could make them drive automatically. But what they do own is trademarks. So there are many companies where all the value resides in the intellectual property. Is IP literacy a basic skill that, you know, should it be taught to all students? Absolutely. And the place to start, by the way, is first grade. And I know that sounds interesting, but the IPOEF, the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, has been hosting these um, video competitions for many years now where they actually start down at the first grade level. And these kids get it. I mean, even it's just that I, I came up with this idea and somebody else stole it from me. That's not fair. And we have content for every grade level, and it's appropriate to that age level. And by the time you get to college, you can read an adult book and understand how important this is. With changes in the American Invents Act and legislation and courts, uh, it's much harder for inventors today. Uh, the value of inventions today may not, uh, your inventions may not have been as valuable today as they were 15 years ago. Um, is inventing still a viable uh, avocation, independent inventing today? So let me go back to your um, introductory remarks. So the America Invents Act did not turn out the way anybody thought it would. We did not really understand what role these review boards would uh, 
what they would do in this new system. And what they had been doing is basically just voiding patent after patent. And there used to be standards about what makes something obvious. And the standard was that if you showed this reference or that reference or two different references to somebody of ordinary skill in the art, they would understand how to anticipate your invention. That's all going away. Now you can have five references. They can teach away from each other so that they shouldn't even be combined. And they go, oh, no, no, no. Ignore that. Put these together. And it looks just like what you have using your thing as the recipe to go find those things. And that's patently unfair. And something's going to have to happen to fix that. That is really the bugaboo of the whole American Events Act. Now, does it pay to invent? Well, first of all, I never invented to make money. That was never my goal. Um, I was trying to do what was best for my patients. And in doing so, uh, other physicians were struggling with the very same problems that I was struggling with. And we basically revolutionized the whole nature of spine surgery. When I did my fellowship, my professor said to me, you're a pretty bright boy. Why would you want to do this? You know, half the time the patients don't get better and half of those get worse. Why don't you go do something else? So that's not the way the world is now. Now, 95% of the patients actually get better. And that's all due to inventions. What was life like growing up? You, you're from Philadelphia. What was life like growing up as a boy in Philadelphia? Philadelphia is a rough town. And in the winter times, it turns gray and it doesn't change until the summer. So uh -huh. now I live in California and I think it's a little bit nicer. What advice do you have for young creators today? If you were starting out as a, you wanted to be a creator, inventor, or content creator for that matter, or starting a business, what, what should you be thinking about? Well, the first thing I would comment on is they have a great advantage over everyone else. When you're young, you have, let's say, daring. And, and you don't know that you can't not do it, so you do it. I mean, and that may sound strange, but as you get older, things become more reserved. You know this. And, and you're less willing to take chances. And I've said this before. The five absolutely essential ingredients to be a successful serial inventor. One, you do need some level of intellect. Um, and two, um, you need some level of knowledge, even though it may be very specialized in a very small area. You may be an expert in a very small area. Maybe you have a job on an assembly line and you know how that thing could be done better. Uh, the third thing you need, and this is important, is you need courage. And, and why do you need courage? Well, first of all, you went through a school system that said color inside the lines. <laughs> and God damn it, you can't invent anything in there. Um, you need to color outside the lines. You need to think outside the box. If you were just going to do what everybody else is already doing, then you wouldn't be inventing. So, so it does require courage, and it requires courage because people will dissuade you. They'll go, what's the matter with you? Everybody else is okay. We're all doing this. And you're not necessarily going to succeed on the first try. So you need to have courage to, to persevere. And, and the, the, the next thing that you need is you need imagination because these things all occur outside of the ordinary. And finally, you need that word I already mentioned, perseverance. You have to be willing to have things not succeed the first time, not consider that a failure, because it's not. It's only a failure if you stop right then and there. If you keep going, it's just a learning experience. And so those are the five essential ingredients to be a, a successful serial inventor.
I think uh, Edison said uh, when he they someone pointed out he had ten thousand failures. He says, "Well, that's ten thousand things I know more about, um, and I, I can know I, I don't have to to go there." So I'm that much closer to my my invention. Um, your organization, MIIP, has been instrumental in getting IP on the education curriculum. Not an easy thing to do. What are the few essentials that every young person must know about IP? First of all, they have to understand the nature of the social contract. Uh, the founding fathers provided for patent protection and copyright protection because they saw it as an equitable bargain. It's a bargain between a creator and the benefit of society, not the deprivation of society. And it really is it's a social contract. And incidentally, in some countries, they have a thing called mandatory licensing, which means if you invent something worthwhile, but you don't want to pursue it, somebody else can. At what point did you go from creator to entrepreneur? Did that just happen? It actually started with the story I told you when I had a hundred of these sets made. I see. So now I, I had a hundred sets and fortunately I had a dog walker, used to walk my dogs. And I said, Suzanne, why don't you go into the medical instrument selling business? And we both laughed and then she took out an ad in the magazine then was called Spine and started selling these. And then over the next year or two, there were all kinds of other things I invented that all did something better than what was there before. And pretty soon we had a fairly robust business. I wasn't involved in it. I was being a doctor, um, and she became president of a company from being a dog walker. Eventually, Johnson Johnson acquired all the patent rights, and that was the beginning of it. And then Medtronic eventually bought your business for $1.35 billion, I believe. They bought most of the patent portfolio. That is correct. Has technology, social media, and the internet changed the nature of inventing and creation in your mind? Yes. Of course, Every, everything on the internet is on steroids. You know, it happens fast, it happens big. If it succeeds, it happens really big. And as we were mentioning, look at a company like Uber. It has trademarks. Trademarks are more potent in some senses than patents are, longer lasting. Other people have copyrights going for 100 years. I, I think everybody has to have some awareness of these tools because if you just want to go to work every day and work for somebody else, it's probably irrelevant. But if you really want to start something on your own, you don't want to do all the work of starting it, have somebody else be able to simply trump you and take it away. And that's even more important on, on the internet because if you start uh, an internet business, let's say it's in um, social media, there's nothing stopping Facebook or somebody else from just going, I'll give that away for free. Because they can make money on something else. They don't have to charge for a subscription. So they can literally take your successful business, cherry pick it, and you're gone after all your efforts. So you do need to have protections. I call a, a patent uh, the anti-monopoly monopoly. Uh, in a way, it levels the playing field. It um, doesn't make it perfect, but it, it, makes, uh, it, makes it, uh, it gives an opportunity to the small and medium-sized uh, enterprise. That's a great description, Bruce. really is true because you'd have no – you could never stand up to a large corporation if you did not have intellectual property protection. Any final thoughts uh, that you'd like to uh, contribute, Dr. Michelson? I guess the final one would have to be, I think we're all um, in a time of increasing awareness of what the sequela has been of uh, racial discrimination. And 
even though so many of us say, well, we're not racist. Uh, in all my organizations now, we've all taken the position that's not enough. You have to be anti-racist. Uh, and there is work that needs to be done to level the playing field. And so one of the projects we're most really just the happiest about is going into the historically black university colleges and promoting intellectual property understanding as an engine of entrepreneurship. So that's something we're, we're very happy about right now. Well, thank you for your time. It's been a very enlightening and uh, entertaining uh, conversation. And uh, thank you. So thank you, Bruce. Understanding IP Matters has been speaking with Dr. Gary Michelson, spinal surgeon, medical inventor, and IP education advocate. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Michelson and his institute, visit michelsonip.com. Understanding IP Matters is brought to you by the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding and its supporters. Visit CIPU at understandingip.org. Follow us on Twitter at Center for IP. This episode was produced and edited by Nathan Tower. Content conveyed by this podcast is for informational purposes and does not reflect the views of CIPU or its affiliates. Thank you.